Welcome, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about investment committees. What can go well, what can go wrong, um, and what can we do about it? So this hopefully will be relevant if you are chairing an investment committee, perhaps. So what are the things you can do to keep it from going off the rails, keep people focused? Um, or if you're a member of an investment committee, how can you contribute to the decision-making process? Uh, or maybe you're not a member of the committee, but maybe you sometimes present on an ad hoc basis, perhaps to an investment committee. So what are some of the tips and traps in your presentation? So joining me for today's discussion is Raywan Williams. Welcome, Raywan. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure to be here. Perhaps, Raywan, you might kick us off, if you may, with a, um, I don't know, brief summary about your backgrounds and particularly your work with investment committees. Sure. I have been in the superannuation and investment management industry in Australia for about 28 years and this sort of interesting career. The first half of that was uh, practising as a tax lawyer and the second half uh, is where I found myself more investment management and then the latter part of that um, got some governance qualifications and found myself um, uh, sort of understanding the other side of presenting to investment committees, which is actually sitting on investment committees. So... Uh, and now I find myself um, uh, um, really working as a as a, a consultant to the to the super and funds management industry. The, there's a number of ways that I have interacted and do interact with investment committees. Um, and the first of those, which is probably evident from my career, is that I have presented to numerous investment committees as an asset consultant or an investment manager on particular topics. Mostly those are to the big institutional investors like super funds in Australia and the retail aggregators, so big pots of money there. Uh, the second way is that I have been an investment committee member of a for-purpose organisation for about six years so it's nice to sort of sit on the other side of it. The third way that I've interacted with investment committees is as a, a researcher or um, in more recent times as a consultant. So um, some of the research papers in my body of work have actually addressed things around investment governance and investment committees um, and reach out to me on LinkedIn if you're really um, interested in reading some of those uh, research papers. Um, and now as a consultant, sometimes I get asked to advise uh, on questions around investment governance and investment committees. And then finally, I would just say that over the last um, six or so years at different times, I've been involved in um, chairing um, a board in the for-purpose space that has done a very big um, governance restructure and I'm back involved in that organisation chairing the aged care part of um, their group at the moment and why that's so relevant is that there's a big investment committee and so I'm, as a chair of the board I'm now looking at the role of that and the other board committees and saying well what is the purpose of that investment committee what's the charter what's the right composition what is reporting to the board from the investment committee etc cetera, etc cetera, look like so it's been really good to look at the idea of what an investment committee is um, through a number of different lenses in my career. Awesome. All right. So let's get into some of those insights that you've got from uh, from all those different uh, perspectives. Perhaps if you can um, start with the chair. So just, I mean, the 
well, again, you've got different perspectives on this, including being the chair yourself from the sound of it. So well, what have you observed from the chair's perspective or, or looking at how, observing how chairs interact with their investment committee? So what have you, what are some of the things you've noticed that have perhaps, well, let's start with the, the problems. What, what have you noticed as being problematic? Yeah, well, look, I'd say um, there's good and bad chairs out there. Um, we all know that. We've all seen that ourselves, uh, I'm, I'm sure. Um, there's really daylight between the two. So the, the efficiency and effectiveness of an IC um, that's chaired well versus chaired badly is, you know, there's, there's a blinding difference between the two. Um, and, you know, I, I think a poor chair doesn't get the balance right between the discussions that need to be had and the time around those discussions and actually getting some good decisions made. And, you know, balancing things is hard in general in life, at least for me. But, you know, a good a good chair will sort of understand that the balance of the two is right. A bad chair sort of maybe can be too decision-oriented and cut off the discussion um, in an unhealthy way or let the discussion and the meeting to be too discursive and then it doesn't actually land in in a good set of uh, well um, thought through and timely and um, precisely articulated decisions. I think also you sometimes get chairs that um, that 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 create that they're unaware of how much of uh, sort of an anchor they create in their decisions. So if you look at the the handbook for chairs it tends to it tends to sort of advise that in most situations your chair should sort of sit back and really uh, let a good debate flourish. Um, and the reason, and it's very, very wise advice, I think, because what I've realised is that when you come in as a chair to the to the um, discussion, people give weight to that viewpoint. And so if you come in very early with that, it creates a bit of an anchoring bias and you could talk more effectively than I could, Simon, about that. But people then, you know, maybe unhealthily anchor their views and their comments to how the chairs weighed in early. So poor chairs perhaps don't realise how much weight, um, you know, their, their positions on certain things have. And so they, they may be showing their hand a bit earlier than they, than they should um, I'd also say, um, and I think this is true not just for chairs, but because of the influence of chairs, it's, they really have to get this right. Um, every chair has a particular style, so you can be more directive or um, more consensus-oriented or, you know, there's a number of chair styles out there that you can read about. And the reality is that one is really quite natural for you which is fine, certainly one's natural for me, but you do need to have other styles in your toolbox. So the, the better chairs actually understand when they need to be more directive versus, you know, give a longer leash to the, to the debate. The, the, direct, the, 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 the chairs that aren't so good just sort of stick to that one style regardless of how the debate's going or sort of the issue that's being raised. So, um, you know, they're sort of... I, I could talk about more. Maybe um, I might keep going because because it is such an important role. Can I just sort of mention a few other things? <laughs> yeah, okay, go for so, it. <laughs> um, only because there's a sort of a recent example I have um, working with an investment committee uh, or board subcommittee, and 
the churches you know, have had wonderful qualities, but just wasn't um, wasn't great at actually nailing down and articulating the very specific decisions, the the action items, the owners' timeframes, and what the what the boards and, and the committee's expectations were. So. The, the chair's role is to make sure that in the end it, um, what is done, what is discussed, is actually captured in a really precise, well-articulated um, set of decisions. And so some chairs are better than others at that and, and a good minute taker should really help that exercise but um, often um, the chair doesn't do it well and the, the minute taker doesn't help. Um, two other things. Um, and this is very topical. So we all know that diversity and inclusion is a really important initiative, but sometimes ICs and chairs can just think that it's ticked by having diversity. So having, you know, co you know, cognitive diversity around the IC table, but there's a reason that we call it diversity and inclusion. So diversity is one half of it the other half which is really the chair's role is to make sure that there's inclusion so you get that cognitive diversity but it's very easy then for that not to translate to that person contributing or those people contributing around the board table not feeling that um, they have the power or not feeling safe to do so not feeling that they're respected so there's a, a lot of work that a good chair will do or a poor chair won't do um, around inclusion so so rounding out that second half of the diversity and inclusion challenge and final thing is that a good chair will spend the time to pre-position and even just work with management on the agenda for the IC. So this is a practical observation, but IC agendas shouldn't be just set agendas that management just runs with all the time. You know, a good chair will understand that he or she has to buy in on what that agenda looks like and where the IC's time is spent every month or every quarter. Oof. <laughs> okay. All right. So I've made quite a few notes in the margin of my page here. I'm going to, if, if you don't mind, I'll go back to a few of the things you've said yeah. and we can perhaps um, um, yeah. go to, I'm interested in your thoughts as to why some of these things are happening, which you've sort of touched on to some extent. If I go back to, to some of the things that you've you've talked about. So in part, you've talked there about the chair sort of anchoring, as you've said, the conversation around their own view. And I think you said it's like part of the handbook that says, no, you shouldn't do that. And if it is part of the handbook, if we all know that that's the case, and presumably this isn't news to the chair, why do you think it's still taking place? Yeah, I actually don't think it is necessarily well understood by chairs how much weight their opinion has and this whole idea of anchoring bias. You know, some people will get it and other aspects of behavioural finance, but some, some don't. So there probably is just a little more education that needs to be done by chairs. Part of it's just probably impatience. Um, you know, let's just, we, we, I know the answer, so I want to get it out there because we've got a lot to get through. We're busy people. Um, you're not seeing it. Um, and so just sort of trying to cut through the debate and land things quicker than they would otherwise land. Yeah. Sometimes it might be a bit of arrogance, I think, or thinking, well, I know I'm right. So we don't need all this other debate. So I know I'm right. There's a reason I'm chair. Um, so look, and Let's hope often they are right, but um, I think I think those are all reasons why we see this um, 
we why why we see chairs weigh in perhaps more than they than than they should or, or earlier than they should. Yeah, you just need to be judicious as a chair. So sometimes you you do need to, but it shouldn't be just sort of the go to. Okay, here's the next agenda item. I'm the chair. This is my view. What do others think? That's that's you know we can do much better than that on an IC. Yeah, I do remember reading. Uh, I think it might be Scott. Uh, anyway, I forget the name of the researcher, but the, some of the research about how the like it's effectively an information cascade takes place, where one person says something, and then a, the subsequent people then are influenced by that first thing, and so you end up with this sort of path-dependent decision making that's gone down a particular path based on this first thing. And and the view of this particular researcher was, well, is this problematic? And it depends if the if that person who speaks first actually has the right answer, then it's good because you've ended up going down a path that's sort of led you down the path to the right answer. <clears throat> so I, mm-hmm. I guess, as you say, do, do they have the right answer, which, well, if the chair thinks they've got the right answer, is that a good guide to whether they do have the right answer or whether there's multiple perspectives that need to be taken into consideration? So, yeah, so I think that's a, that's a core question, I guess, is, is whether it's positive or negative. But I, I agree with you. I think people over... Or underestimate the power of that information cascade. So one of the things I do with teams sometimes to just show them is that, and this isn't my idea, I've just taken it from research, which is that you've, you've got a little jar of marbles and they're blue and green or something and each person mm-hmm. gets to take one out and you get to look at it and then you don't show everybody else what, what that marble is and then you put it back in and your job is to say, do I think there's more green or blue marbles in the jar? So I might pick the first one out and go, oh, yeah, I, I can see it's a blue one. My, I don't know how many there's in there, but my best guess, given my one data point, is it's blue. And then mm-hmm. I pass the jar to the next person. Now they pulled out another blue one, say, and they go, right, I heard Simon thought it was blue, and I've got a blue one too. My best guess is there's more blues in there. And they pass mm-hmm. it, and they say blue. You pass the jar on, the next person pulls a green mm-hmm. one. Now that I've heard two people say blue, and I've got a green mm-hmm. one. My best guess now is blue still because two people thought blue and I've got one green so I say blue next person picks out a green and go well I've now got three people who said blue and I've got a green I think it's blue and you put that in the jar and the next person pulls out a green you could go around for you could do a hundred pull out a hundred green ones after that point and everybody would say blue and it's not because they're acting irrationally they're acting rationally in the sense that they're incorporating the views of other people but the problem is that we've got this cascade that's formed and part of it is the lack of transparency that I haven't shared with you my, this is the actual ball, I've shared with you my conclusion about the jar. So I think that's that's part of it. Mm. I think is, does the chair share their view or are they sharing information that then is incorporated into the collective decision-making process? Have you sort of made an observation about that distinction? Are they sharing a, a view or are they sharing information? Um. My observation would simply be that that's a very important distinction because um, you're right, um, anyone, including the chair, should be um, not quite rushing but very forthright around relevant information. I mean, that's crucial. But sometimes it can be hard to not follow up information with, of course, that means. Mm-hmm. And so it probably is a matter of saying, well, this is relevant 
information to socialise. That is oxygen for great collective decision-making. But when I go sort of quite early, particularly as a chair, and say these, this is the impact of that or this is what it means for us, you're getting into that area where you probably want the debate to flourish around the boardroom table um, before you weigh in. As, as a rule, um, you know, there are exceptions to that. Uh, I will also thank you, Simon, for the term information cascade. I'm going to figure out how to use that in my own meetings in the future to sound very intelligent. Thank you. Uh, well, that is the key, sounding very intelligent. But so going, back, <laughs> yeah. so going back to another one of the things which I quite liked, which is this sort of flexibility of style, and it seemed to be related to whether I'm a good note taker and how closely I follow a process. And the thing that occurred to me in listening to that is that the, the note taking piece and the process following and having the agenda, that to me very sounds a lot like the personality char characteristic of conscientiousness which is just like all the other all the other personality traits in this is the sort of big five or ocean as the acronym for the big five and people can be high low or medium on all these sort of traits so it sounds like if you've got a chair who is not high on conscientiousness mm. then you need perhaps somebody else in the or in the, in the investment committee who is high who can maybe do the note taking make sure the agenda's out i mean is that it, is that what we need? Is that sort of when you, you raise sort of diversity, and I presume you mean perhaps diversity of experience, but this is sort of diversity of style or diversity of personality. Is it, did you have that in mind as well for, for diversification or diversity in these teams? Um, I hadn't thought so much about it, but, yes, I mean, the full, if we believe in diversity, we really believe in diversity in all its forms, so not just you know, uh, cognitive diversity, then diversity of style surely is a is a is a further enhancement. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to think about, you know, an even higher form of, of diversity. Yeah. I mean I it's I sort of felt a bit embarrassed about sort of raising in the response the idea of um, you know, note taking and precisely articulated decisions because it seems like a hygiene factor. Um but it is just sort of interesting, um, you know, reflecting on times where I've seen, you know, really top-notch top organisation, top-notch people fail just, and it, it might be just because they have a style that is mismatched so they don't have that conscientiousness, that's not their natural strength. Um, and so you just... Like we're all a bundle of strengths and weaknesses, right, each one of us. And so if we're self-aware enough, we just... So, for example, if I'm called to chair something and I think I have a lot of skills but where I might be weak is conscientiousness, as long as I have the self-awareness and humility to, to think, oh, well, what's the plan to address that? Because I don't want the IC to um, be hampered because that's not a great skill of mine. You ask for help. You get some training. You ask for help from your IC uh, members or the minute taker and you just make a plan to... Um, yeah, to sort of counteract the the effects of that weakness as much as you can. Yeah. Okay. So um, one of the other things that you mentioned in our previous conversations has been about how um, investment committee members need to play different roles when they're part of the investment committee compared with the roles they might play in their day-to-day -day job functions. Can you perhaps elaborate on that or do you have some examples about where that's been particularly relevant? Yeah, so it's particularly an observation for management 
ICs, Management Investment Committees. Um, I have seen members, you know, come into committees like that as as um, a head of department. You know, very well-respected, um, talented professional don't always appreciate that they're wearing a different hat as an IC member. Um, and so what you, what I've seen sometimes is they're sort of, they're, they're technically part of this IC, but, you know, for example, if they're the, the unit pricing expert or SME, they're just really waiting for something to come up around unit pricing and then they'll jump in, you know, and, and answer based on their professional expertise. And so... What they're not doing there is they're not recognising that they wear a different hat and they represent a different set of stakeholders now as an IC member. Um, so, for example, if you're you know if you're, you're the head of risk and you and you're sitting on an IC committee, then investment committee, then you know in your in your day job outside of the investment committee work you do then you know your relationship with the regulator your firm's relationship with the regulator is front and center but you come into the investment committee and in terms of the stakeholder shift really what should be front and center is the superannuation fund member or the pooled fund investor experience and so you're actually having to shift focus and put yourself in the position of a different or a wider set of stakeholders than you would as an SME in your, you know, BAU role. The other thing that, um, the other thing that, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but I, I think it needs to be talked about is that that when you're an, an SME um, and you're coming to sit on something like an IC where you're not, you're not an investment professional per se, but there are good reasons to have you there. It can be quite confronting because, quite frankly, you're you're used to being good at what you do and knowing all the answers and speaking the language and being completely on top of all the, the content that comes your way. And then you, you come into the IC and suddenly you're in this new space where sometimes the language will throw you you may not have the answer. You're starting to starting to have to ask questions and you might look around the room and think, am I the only one who doesn't understand this? I certainly relate relate to that. And so um and so part of the problem sometimes is that it's just it's just too much of a leap for you to go from you know knowing everything and being the trusted expert to being in this position where you're quite uncomfortable and don't know it all and not the sort of trusted expert in an IC sense. And so that's the, that is, I think that's a very real problem and not one that people talk about because it's just, it's just a hard thing to talk about. But, but, but that's actually quite natural. I mean, I haven't met many people in my life who are experts in everything. Um, and it probably it feels a bit personal. <laughs> All right, Simon. I <laughs> did say I haven't met many. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I, I sort of I, I know it because uh, I, I mentioned at the start of this this uh, interview that I started life as a as a tax lawyer and and I somehow wandered into investment management and then investment governance and you know I had this little rule that every time I, um, you know, heard a, what I now realise is quite a basic investment concept and I had no idea what it meant, I'd write it down and Google it so that the next time it came up in a meeting I could not only pretend I understood but really understood. 
but there's a better way to do it, right? We need to sort of understand with these ICs that for good reasons, we have more than just investment professionals on it. And so then we need to create a culture where people who are good at other things um, feel that feel um, feel that they can ask these questions and not be judged and not feel dumb or naive. So they need to have curious curiosity and they need to have the courage to say, actually, don't I don't quite follow. Can you explain it? And um, it's actually a good thing for an IC to have to, to, to hear these questions from non-investments non people because it's just helpful to, re to reframe things, taking out the jargon and putting it in plain English. It, 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 one of the things it does is it moves you closer to the, the, the member experience and the, the people who are putting things in your hands because you do have the financial literacy. But to explain it to a non-investments person um, is healthy because it's it takes you closer to having to explain it to the, the member or the ultimate stakeholder of, of what you're doing. Yeah, so if I go back to your um, uh, unit pricing person. <clears throat> okay, so I'm the specialist at unit pricing. I know all the ins and outs in, I don't know, all the mechanics that go on behind the scenes, but I've got no idea about longevity risk and I don't know annuities and pro I don't know, all that other stuff that maybe is being discussed in the, con in the concepts of product design and blah 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 okay so I'm sitting there I'm waiting for my as you say my question to come to me about unit pricing mm. <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for that poor person sitting there in that case yeah um, what, what are you suggesting that this person should be doing differently yeah, I think uh, a couple of things in particular. One is that to invest a little bit of time and uh, into literacy and to be able to speak a little more of the language and get, get across some of the concepts and understand that that's part of your role as an IC member now. So back to that idea of you're wearing a different hat now, what are the skills I need? It's actually not just me as the head of unit pricing coming in. My hat's a little different, so I need to be developed in a way to fit that new, new hat. So that's part of it. So there's a little bit of sort of learning and development and a mindset shift. But the other thing um, to somewhat traverse old territory is to actually recognise that, that to hold yourself to a lower standard in terms of saying, I'm not expected to know everything. I'm not expected to follow everything. I am actually allowed to and actually encouraged to ask questions and they are not dumb questions. No one's there expecting me as the head of unit pricing to be talking, you know, in great depth about longevity risk necessarily or, um, you know, or, or anything else. My function is actually to ask some of those questions that are sort of next level down from someone who doesn't live and breathe investments. Yeah, I, I quite like that. I mean, it, in, in part, it sort of reflects this thing called fractionated expertise. That, uh, there's a great paper by Daniel Kahneman and Gary Klein that sort of looks at how can you understand what you're actually good at? Do I have genuine expertise at something like I actually can do better than a simple algorithm or a non-expert at something? Or does it just seem like I'm expert at something? And one of the conclusions they draw is, well, it might be like, like say, say I'm a surgeon. Okay, I'm an expert at surgery. Well, okay, yeah, but you can break my surgery into pieces and you go, well, yeah, you're an expert at, I don't know, 
opening up someone's chest and tying knots in their heart or whatever. I don't know. I'm not an expert at surgery, but you can understand there's the parts that actually really you've had a lot of experience and you've developed feedback and training. Yes, you're very good at that, but maybe you're not expert at explaining all that to your patient in the bedside manner. And so you can sort of break down your expertise into the pieces. And we don't typically do that enough in that we just broadly categorize someone. Oh, you've been in the industry for 30 years. You obviously know what you're talking about. You've got gray hairs or you've got whatever it is. And actually we should be partitioning them into the pieces. And I think Bridgewater is a good example of this because they had a system. Have you come across the Bridgewater system? For, for um, uh, They have a baseball card no, no. thing. Oh, well, I don't know. Keep going because I know Bridgewater and they're great, but tell me more. Yes, this is the Ray Dalio thing. If you read his giant mm. book on principles, so one of the things he said is that w- that they try and say, okay, if I if I'm in a meeting, for example, then I'd have effectively some sort of little tag or something that says, okay, when Simon speaks at the meeting, what should we really be listening to, and what can we ignore because he doesn't know what he's talking about? And so mm. it might say behavioral finance. Yes, Simon knows something about this, but if I talk about longevity risk, well, really, my opinion is as good as the next person who's sort of been in the industry, but is not necessarily a specialist at it. And so when mm. I speak, you can give the things I say different amounts of of weight. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like the unit pricing guy. Okay, fine. Sorry, I've said guy, girl, woman, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Probably guy. Somewhere think, on probably. the gender spectrum, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so that person, when they speak about unit pricing, I should give them a very high weight. They probably know what they're talking about. They've got expertise in that. When they ask a question about longevity risk, it shouldn't be zero because they've, mm. they've but it's, but it also should be maybe at the level of a, an unsophisticated sort of industry participant or something like that. And it's a, about being aware of the weights that we should give different people for different things that they say rather than having a sort of a general concept of this person knows what they're talking about this person speaks confidently this person's very experienced that person's a junior person that sort of stuff have you seen that sort of differentiation or sort of passing apart people's expertise in that way no i haven't really i think it's fascinating and i think there's a lot of sense in it um no i think it's much more like you described where people just sort of broadly categorize someone as 30-year expert in something um, versus something else. Um, one thing I would say is, I mean, I, I do, I, I do, I do agree and relate to that idea of of then sort of assigning weightings in a very logical way that that correlate with expertise. But I don't want to discount something that I've found fascinating in my career, and that is these people that. Um, are literate enough to sort of understand a related expertise. It's not their expertise, but it's a related area. And so they're looking at something with a new lens or a different lens and a little bit more with an outsider's perspective. And they actually can bring an insight that someone who's just lived and breathed that and been in that bubble with everyone else who's exactly like them hasn't thought of. That actually does happen in the industry and so we do need to, I think we need to be really open to what someone who isn't the expert can bring to the discussion just by just by having a bit more of a left field view of it or a different lens. Mm. Yeah, to me that sort of sounds like, again, this is not me, this is, I don't know, Daniel Kahneman would talk about this, which is the inside mm. view versus the outside view. 
And the inside view is the detailed look at a specific scenario as it relates to our fund or our investment portfolio or our fund manager role. Mm-hmm. That sort of that's my inside view. Which if I'm in a fund and we've know the manager well and we've yeah I've got the inside view. But we then you then need to take a step back and go oh yeah but what is the broader category we're part of here? We are part of all of the funds who choose asset managers, for example. Well, how well do we as a whole category go? Because if the whole category is poor at doing something and we are holding ourselves out to be very good at this very specific thing, there's mm. a big chance that we're actually kidding ourselves unless we're very much above average, <laughs> which we all like to think that we are, but of course we can't all be above average. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I have made the maths work on that, yes. Um, yeah, and it's um, it, it's it's partly it's because, um, you know, this is a very intense dynamic industry and it's data rich and you just be carried along with the momentum of your professional, you know, career and the work that needs to be done every day. And so you just every day you're feeding that and you're moving along, um, you know, carried along in that vortex and meeting with people who are all doing the same thing and you do... You know, it just becomes very uh, affirming, like it's that sort of group affirmation and you, you do sometimes lose that sense that there is an outside perspective that you might be missing just yeah. by virtue of, you know, the busyness and the, the demands of your day-to-day professional role. Yeah. Okay. Um, so moving on to the next question, which um, one of the themes of our conversation we had offline in preparation of this it was... I guess about related to transparency. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned, which I quite liked, was around the transparency in relation to the purpose of the meeting, that people can just lose sight of it, not necessarily be aware of it. Do you mind giving us a, a, an example or two of what you've observed in that respect? One of the things that I was often asked to do when I was out and about in the industry was, was advise on... Um, um, the kind of after-tax reporting that a, that a fund should implement. And they would ask, you know, some very technical questions like, um, uh, like should it um, be pre-liquidation or post-liquidation, um, you know, those sorts of sorts of questions, you know, how should, we, how should we treat franking credits on Australian equities? And, you know, it's very technical things that were legitimate questions to ask. But in order for me to answer the question correctly for that organisation depended on what they wanted to get out of it. So, you know, for example, you could have wanted to align your um, investment tax um, calculations with unit pricing. You could have wanted to change manager behaviour, incentivise managers um, to be more tax aware in their investment decision making. You could have wanted to really make a judgment about whether active management was better than passive when you considered fees and taxes. So there were, you know, different drivers of why you would build an after-tax reporting um, framework. And so I would always get these technical questions and say, well, just tell me why you're doing it. And I'd say 85% of the time I would get a blank stare. And they, they not only wouldn't have the answer, but they would resent the question. <laughs> and so it was really difficult, you know, you know, they just want an answer to it. You know, it's a complex area of technical and news. So the last thing they wanted was for me to throw a question back at them. 
But that, I mean, that's a very technical example that I came up against time and time again. But perhaps one that's a bit more relatable to people is um, something in the last year I've been involved in with a client where uh, I, I was asked to come along to sort of a number of product restructuring meetings, just to having a look at different product structures in the super space. And, you know, it was never clear to me what problem we were trying to solve, you know, where we, where we, you know, were we looking at underperforming investment objectives, where we trying to position the portfolios and the products to pass the new Your Future, Your Super test? Was there dwindling advice, financial advisor support for the products or loss, loss of, you know, competitive um, advantage? Were there high costs of manufacture they were worried about? Was it related to this capability sourcing project and what do we insource versus outsource from an investment point of view? Was it, you know, was it actually trying to be an import into that? Um, and so... Because I didn't have the why question, I never was quite sure whether how useful my input was or whether the meetings were successful in general. In general, And I would put my hand up and say that I should have done more to, to say um, I don't understand why we're here and I wish I had done that. One of the many regrets that I have and will continue to have. But it just is a, is a good sort of more recent example of how, um, you know, a, a purpose statement could have really helped and and so often it waylays things when you don't get a, a purpose statement. And when I say a purpose statement, not a flabby purpose statement, like we're here to just um, think about different product structures, you know, or we're here to, we're here to um, actually do better at our um, prospecting, you know, our business development. I mean, if in that sense you want to have a, you know, I'd like to see a specific purpose statement, which is in this meeting, we're going to look, identify our top five prospects and agree our next steps for getting those prospects closer to a, a sale, a sale, you know. So, so having a purpose statement um, and actually having a, you know, a specific purpose statement is, is, it's just so much more helpful to meetings, helpful for everyone. One of, one of the things it does, it actually gives you the opportunity to feel, to, to celebrate a successful meeting, a good meeting at the end. Like if you know what you were there to achieve or you know you're walking out with something that you didn't know when you walked in and that was the whole idea of the meeting, you get to actually say to everyone in the room, that was a great meeting, well done. Yeah. And if similarly, even if you haven't that purpose statement and you come out of a meeting and it, you didn't achieve it, you get to identify it as a learning opportunity and say, why didn't that go so well um, and how can we learn from that? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that that whole conversation around purpose. It just makes me makes me reflect on some of the stuff I do on in terms of communications. Like it might be a super fun communicating to their members. They're sending out an email to members, or I don't know, a financial advisor sending an email out to their clients, or an asset manager putting a piece of comms out to to their retail client base. And I'm asked to, well, what can we do to improve the document, and how can we blah 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 blah, and I think it's the same thing. It's like, well, what are you trying? What is the purpose? What are you trying to get the person who reads this? Well, reading it might be help be a helpful starting point, but then then to do what? Is it to contribute more to super? Is it to switch their investments? Is it maybe to do nothing? Because depending on that, mm. if it's to do nothing, no problem. You don't have to worry about making the call to action clear and sort of cutting out sort of all, all of the text because doing nothing is probably what they're going to do if you leave it as it is and that could be perfectly yep. fine but if you want them to yep. do something 
then we really need to bring that. But but often it's it's hard to articulate what is the purpose of it. But but why do you think why do you think it's going missing? How do we get that far through a process without really knowing what we're trying to achieve? Yeah, I just think we haven't learned to do it, and it's it it we, you know, we don't have to hold ourselves to account, you know, if we if we haven't articulated a purpose statement when we have a meeting, it's we don't have to be held to account. And well, that's very freeing, isn't it? Life's very easy when you don't have to be held to account. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's deliberate, but you know, it's just an easier way to do things if um, if we have less rather than more accountability. Not good for the business, not good for the stakeholders, but it's you know maybe easier for the individual. And I'm sorry if that sounds a bit bit cynical, but probably more than anything, it's just something that we haven't learned to to do well. Um, I would say too, you, um, you know, I, you know, I am really flying the flag for you know being quite clear on purpose. But I want to say that um, purpose—it's very legitimate to say our purpose is just to actually have a creative ideas sharing session together or throw some wild ideas at at, at the board. So when I talk about purpose I'm not saying sort of a hard-nosed decision and action item I really want to leave a lot of room for a deliberate purpose of just cultivating innovation and creativity which we just don't seem to do well in the finance industry and I also want to acknowledge that um, sometimes purpose does shift in a meeting and I know that I was involved in a in an interesting board meeting a while ago where, and this wasn't the board that I chair, I was a consultant at the time, and then it turned very quickly into a, a, a forum for the board to express a lot of frustration at management um, about some of the things that were happening. And so, it, you know, that that was somewhat legitimate and so really the purpose shifted from the articulated sort of agenda items of that board largely to this idea of let's really let's really go to a tough place and try to understand why the board is struggling to get behind some of managers recommendations so sometimes purpose can shift in a in a meeting and that's you know business and people we're all we're all a bit dynamic and fluid and life is messy and things do change but I would say then even then you know in that kind of meeting to have someone say okay let's just recognize here that the the purpose has changed now let's really use this forum to address some relationship issues between the board and management or just you know articulate the new purpose then that re-establishes some accountability and some kind of anchoring around why we're here and how we relate what we talk about next to um, you know the relevance of the meeting and the the meeting outcomes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears from the very high level, big ticket sort of purpose question to a bit lower level one, which is around the use of jargon. So I reckon this is another one of those ones where in your playbook it will say avoid jargon. I don't think that's going to be news to many people, but again, we're sort of in a world where it seems to be everywhere. It, it, sorry, let me not put words into your mouth. Is it everywhere? And if so, what have you observed? Oh, Simon, it's everywhere in investment management. And uh, I wouldn't quite uh, quite agree with you in saying that it's um, always unhelpful or unnecessary or overused because I think 
investment management is very technical and so sometimes jargon's really cool in the same way a good chart, you know, a killer chart is really cool in cutting through and expressing something in a very precise way that experts understand and um, being very efficient with time because you don't have to say, you know, outperformance over a manager's performance benchmark. You can just say alpha, like, and we all get it. So jargon has its place, particularly in an industry like this, but it can be very easily misused or overused. So there needs to be just a real awareness of where um, it's useful and where it's overplayed um, for reasons that don't, don't make sense. So... And we have a lot of ICs in the industry with non-investment people on them. And that's, you know, hopefully it's evident in what we've covered so far is that there are good reasons for that. I mean, I hope that we don't see ICs with no investments expertise, but but certainly non-investments expertise has its place on an IC or other committee. But certainly you can just lose them completely if you just put up this sort of huge wall of jargon, this huge language um, barrier. And it's it's just the opposite of why you're there and why you believe in good governance. You're not you're not able to get inclusion. You're not able to access, you know, healthy, diverse contributions to a discussion from around the boardroom table because some people aren't speaking that language. And if there's a couple of things um, I've learned, it is that you should never assume that everyone speaks the language and you should never assume that if they don't speak in, speak the language that they will put their hand up and tell you, you know. It can be really uncomfortable to admit that, especially if you feel like the dunce in the room, um, that you don't follow something or what does that actually mean. I know with the after-tax investing work that I um that I do and, and started doing about a decade ago, I have, I've always tried to take the time to go, okay, what do we mean about an after-tax return instead of a pre-tax return? What do we mean about a concept like tax alpha rather than just assume that people um, speak that language? Because it is just jargon. Um, so um, I think some of the more, sometimes it's just used for laziness, you know, people the time, poor and uh, let's just hope everyone gets it. Some I have seen what I think sometimes is a bit of a more sinister use and that's particularly when you have more of an old school type of governance or investment management where the the senior investment people roll into an investment committee but they, they would prefer to be left alone and trusted, you know, that old school black box I know what I'm doing. You don't need to interrogate it. And in fact, don't go into this area that's highly proprietary. And so what you'll sometimes do is you'll see those people use jargon as code for, you know, see how clever I am and cleverer than, cleverer than you because you don't speak this language and I do. So just trust me because I really know what I'm doing. And so that I'm not saying I see that a lot, but I have seen it. And that's where it seems to me that, jargon is trying to sort of move an investment committee away from really having a full and frank discussion about things and become more of a box ticker that just um, leaves the the CIO and the investment team um, alone. So I don't 
like that. The other that's less sinister and just more sort of unfortunate, um, and we can probably all relate to examples like this, is just just ambiguity. Sometimes you get um, you get that that jargon that can mean different things. So sort of I was involved in a project this year where we're all talking about IMAs. And then it took a while for me to realise that all the people with a legal bent like me were talking about investment management agreements and all the people with a product bent were talking about individually managed accounts. And it's it's almost faulty towers like, you know, you could, you know, you get some hilarious um, you know, misunderstandings come out of that. One that is a bit more um pervasive and, and topical, I think, is underperformance. A lot of investment committees are having or overperformance, but they're having they're having these really really important necessary discussions about um, underperformance, for example. But I have seen them not necessarily take the time to look around the room and say, "Oh, okay, what we mean by this is underperformance versus a performance benchmark that we all." Or no, what we mean is underperformance against your future, your super, or underperformance versus peers. You know, given our peer ranking objectives, um, or something else even. So, and even underperformance over over short term versus long term. So, you get this sort of use of jargon that create that that has ambiguity of meaning, and so you get this investment committee who are all interpreting it different ways. Now, that's not deliberate, but it's just really a lack of care around the language and the way it's used. And it wouldn't matter so much if we weren't talking about really important concepts. You know, we're talking about the performance of um, investment options and, and products. And we need to absolutely know and be no doubt that everyone is talking about exactly the same thing. And yet, um, it doesn't happen sometimes in practice. And I remember to, to finish sort of my my thinking on this, we spend in our industry a lot of time taking a lot of care over the numbers, right, to get the numbers exactly right. We don't often take that much time or care around language, and yet language is inherently a lot more ambiguous than numbers, I don't know, maybe some mathematical people will disagree with me, but I always think that, you know, we see numbers on a page and you, we all, we can all sort of trust generally that we're reading the same thing and taking the same meaning out of it, but language is much more inherently uncertain, open to interpretation. So we would take, we should take at least as much care and I would say even more care over language in ICs and other investment forums than we do with numbers. Yeah, and you've probably seen, if you've seen the research that says, let's just take a word like likely, for example, and ask people, what percentage probability do you assign to the word likely? And it's not like we all go, oh, that's 75, we all agree. No, you get this massive spectrum of some people say, oh, no, that means 99%. And some people say, well, it's just more than 50. And so, yeah, you, you mentioned a word like that, I agree. And you end up with a whole range of quite diverse interpretations. But so, what, so one of the things that, that occurred to me in listening to what was a, a raft of different issues going on there, so some intentional, if you, as you're saying, so maybe perhaps it's, this is a deliberate barrier to say, I'm the expert, back away, this is my area. Mm. And other, others mm. of them are through overlooking the ambiguity or overlooking different interpretations or, or whatever it is. And there's a thing called Hanlon's Razor. Have you come across Hanlon's Razor? 
No, no. Probably no Occam's razor. Do you know Occam's razor? Yes, Occam's razor, yeah. Yeah, so Occam's razor is the simple explanation is probably the best or worst that effect. Yep. And Han- Hanlon's razor is similar, except it's saying we shouldn't ascribe to malice so like intentional, deliberate wrongdoing, like in this case, the I'm deliberately using jargon because I really don't want you to be able to yeah. interpret what I'm saying. And we shouldn't, inter- we shouldn't um, ascribe things to malice that can be adequately ascribed to stupidity. And I mean, <laughs> stupidity here is, I think, a bit of a harsh word. Maybe we could yeah. say, rather than yeah. stupidity, I would say due to ignorance or due to lack of understanding of what's going on. And like, I think mm. your IMA is a great example because we, I mean, in the conversation, we had SME, is that subject matter expert mm. or is it um, small medium enterprise, even yeah. IC. I mean, I, I typed in this morning, yeah. I typed in IC. What does IC stand for? It doesn't come up with investment committee. It comes up with the integrated circuit, Yeah, for example. Oh. I mean, We've been talking about I the wrong stopped. things for an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the one thing I struggled with, so I came from a mergers and acquisitions background, investment banking and then into financial into the financial advice arena, and everyone kept talking about SOAs. And it, it took mm-hmm. me, I don't know, a good 18 months, two years perhaps, before my automatic response wasn't scheme of arrangement, a way of executing uh-huh. a merger. And No, it's a statement of advice. And I kept having to stop. Yeah. No, no, it's not a scheme of arrangement. Statement of advice, statement of advice, statement of advice. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah. but also another point that yours I really re- that resonates with me is the fact that it's it's sort of shorthand. It's easy for me in our conversation. Okay, I see. We say I see. You know, it's investment committee. I know it's investment committee. It's easy for me, but to some extent, it's me outsourcing my difficulty to the listener. When I say <laughs> SME, I'm outsourcing to you the problem of interpreting what I mean. So yes, I've mm-hmm. saved myself saying subject matter expert which is like one jewel of energy I spent an extra half a second to articulate those words. <laughs> That's true. But then I've then imposed upon on you that, that small amount uh, of extra burden as well. And I see that, gosh, all the communications that come out where we leave it to the person to interpret it and go, well, yeah. can't we just make it easier by personalizing it or being explicit about what it means for them, uh, for yeah. example? Yeah. And by the way, I see yeah. there's a, a message by, from Peter here. Uh, which sort of seems to be, well, I'm not sure, perhaps on the incompetence end of the spectrum. Uh, so he says, in some investment committee meetings, we have questioned the manager, who, the managers who were presenting or what some of the jargon they used meant. On many occasions, they could not explain what the term meant. So, so, uh, sorry. so in that case, yeah, yeah it seems to be incompetence. Uh, so we've covered quite a lot of ground here uh, today. And if I was to ask you, to say, what is the single biggest thing? What is the one thing, if you had to narrow down the 50 things that we've just talked about, what's one thing that you would say you would uh, suggest to an investment committee to, to make things sort of more effective? Yeah, okay. Um, I, would, I would say that each IC member, and we're not talking about integrated circuits, each yeah. IC member should link everything they do to how it makes a difference to the member investor. Like, why are we discussing this? Why does it matter to the member or investor in the room? And if that link isn't clear, then be brave enough to question why it's even on the IC agenda. Yeah, nice. So yeah. it's picking up your purpose point. Yeah. Mm. I, I was thinking if, if you asked me the same question, what would I say? I, I reckon, I mean, I, hard to disagree with what you said, of course, uh, but I, what I thought was, Maybe that it, it would be to break down the barrier, which is that 
I think we come to a, to a meeting with the sense that if we just put a bunch of smart people in the room, they'll work it out. It will work out fine. And it's just, it's, no, it's no. <laughs> not how it works. Like, put smart people together and they can go down this information cascade. Views can be overlooked. People can feel hesitant about asking the questions that might be perceived as dumb. Jargon can lead to all this mm. sort of stuff, which means that you've got to stop mm. and go, actually, no, smart people in a room is not enough. We need processes. We need agreed uh, approaches. We need to work out what the purpose is. We, all this other stuff needs to happen. Otherwise, it's just not going to work as intended. Yep, and we need to agree that it's worthwhile investing in all those things because good governance leads to better outcomes and leads us to be able to deliver on our mission and care for our members and investors. So, yes, we need to do all that work, but we need to have the appetite to do it because we believe there'll be a good good result at the end of it. Yep, well said. Okay, so I always like to finish these things on time and we're about out of time now. So... If you want to get in contact with Raywin or myself, then feel free to reach out to either of us via LinkedIn. And finally, I should say as well, I've just released a book some of you may have seen, uh, which is Behavioral Finance, A Guide for Listed Equities Teams. And there's two chapters in that book which relate to some of the concepts we've talked about today. So there's Chapter 11, Run Team Meetings That Avoid Group Think, and Chapter 12, Foster a Team Culture That Enables Robust Team Discussions. So I would highly recommend this awesome book by this great guy, Simon Russell. Check it out on, <laughs> so, on Amazon. So I'll, I'll just say that it, it is great. I'm, I'm reading it at the moment, and um, I've read some of other si of Simon's works, and, um, yeah, I always get a lot out of it. So they might not believe you because it's your own your own <laughs> content, but uh, um, you're hearing it from, from someone else at least. So I'm, I'm going to back you up on that, Simon. Sounds good. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Raywin, for your time and everybody else for joining us online. Thank you.